0: Hello, and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that maybe just need a little more love. And our movie today is kind of a first, because this is not a movie that's unknown, it's not a movie that's unheard of, it's a movie that millions of people saw, it made lots of money, but it just was considered a disappointment at the time, to the point that it really kind of broke the heart of the guy who made it, Quentin Tarantino, and over the years it has kind of been reevaluated and seen as a classic, probably much to his delight, because this is a movie that he loved it at the time he felt very strongly about it. it kind of flopped and he took it really personally and the movie of course i'm talking about is quentin tarantino's 1997 movie Jackie Brown which uh a lot to say about this one this is kind of the forgotten quentin tarantino movie it's the movie that you don't hear talked about very much but i am surprised when i talk about it these days and i hear how many people love it and it's like a dark horse favorite and they all think they're the only ones who love it so We're really going to delve into this one, and again, this is the first Tarantino movie I've done on this show. It's going to be interesting, and uh, yeah, so we'll just get right into it. Um, My co-host today, I was fortunate to find a guy, he's actually one of the readers of my website. And he happens to be a big Jackie Brown fan. So I was excited to hear that because I am as well. And he wanted to come on and talk about it. So we have a uh, Quentin Tarantino fan, a uh, movie projectionist, which is very exciting. I love hearing from people who actually work in movies themselves. Like, he sits in the theater. He's the guy showing it to you on the screen. Welcome to the show, Will Holston.
1: Hi, I'm Will. I'm a dog walker and sometimes movie theater projectionist. And this is my Tech 9 how are you doing, Mario?
0: I am doing good. Thank you very much for coming to talk about this one, because this is one of these episodes. You know, when I start planning out these Staff Pick episodes, there's some that I really care about. There's some that are kind of give throwaways. This one I've always had an asterisk next to because I have so much to say about it. So I hope you're as excited about Jackie Brown as I am.
1: Oh, I, I definitely am. I just got finished watching it, and I was taking notes, and I just have, like, long pages of it. I'm so excited. There's a lot to say.
0: Okay, before we get into the movie, and I, there's a lot of history here I want to talk about, but let's talk about you for a second. How, like, what's your uh, exposure to Quentin Tarantino movies? Do you know all of them? How did you first learn about Jackie Brown? Kind of give us the history here.
1: Okay, um, I can't quite remember when I first heard of him. He's just kind of in the popular conscious, so you just know about him for the for your entire life. Um, I would say I am a hot and cold fan on Quintino, which we can kind of get into as we go. Uh, I love some of his earlier movies. Recently, I haven't really liked his movies. I actually, think they've been kind of bad in the last couple movies, um, and there's reasons for that. But uh, um, Jackie Brown has been my favorite ever since I first saw it. I think I bought it in Pulp Fiction just on an impulse at blockbuster you know when they used to sell their used dvds Mm -hmm. um and then i've been in love with it ever since
0: so how old are you is this a movie you would have seen in the theater
1: uh no i'm 30 i didn't see it in theaters i guess i would have been uh like six or so six or seven (laughs) if i'm doing the math right
0: (laughs) probably not the pulp fiction probably not the ideal movie to show to a six-year-old
1: Uh, No, I was much more into Sallow when I was a six-year-old, so it really was, like, kind of below my taste level. (laughs)
0: Yeah, um, I will will give my history here again. Quentin Tarantino, one of these legendary directors. Some people love him. Some people hate him. I I will never say he's my favorite director. I'm kind of with you, Will, that some of his movies I really like and some I don't like all that much. But I will say, I don't know if maybe you dispute this, I think he's one of the most interesting directors out there if only because everything he makes tends to be an event movie. Like, you kind of have to see it. And it's one of these things you'll never not have an opinion on. You'll either... You'll have a strong opinion on his movie one way or another. Would you kind of feel about it the same way?
1: Um, hmm. Yes, I mean, he's definitely... Like, there are very few directors who have movies that come around, and it's an event, and it's kind of like... It's a big, it's a big thing. Like, everybody anticipates it. It's a big production. I wonder what the status of that is going to be going forward, considering the people who allowed him to make the kinds of movies that he made Mm -hmm. are not really uh, in the position to finance movies at the moment. So it's going to be interesting to track where he comes or where he goes in the future. But I would agree he's a very interesting director to talk about and to just like track the progress of what he's done.
0: Now, would you agree with me that Jackie Brown is kind of the uh, black sheep of Quentin Tarantino movies, the one that hardly anybody ever talks about?
1: Yeah, I would say so. Um, I feel like recently I've definitely seen an uptick in people who say it's their favorite or say that they really like it. Um but like you were saying, it's kind of one of those movies now that everybody's like, well, what I think is Jackie Brown is his best movie and everybody else is like, yeah, we all think that. So mm-hmm. you're not you're not special, but it's it's getting a reevaluation. But I think for a while there, it was kind of the yeah, it was the redheaded headed stepchild. I was actually watching on the DVD. There's a little introduction by Quentin Tarantino. Uh, for when the DVD came out. And apparently I tried to look into this. I'm not sure if this was true, but it took five years for this movie to come out on DVD. It didn't come out on DVD until 2002. Wow. Um, so that might explain why it sort of was under the radar for a while. I don't know what was going on with that, but that, that might explain something.
0: Well, I mean, the under the radar part happened well before that. I, I'll give people a little history because you're a little young maybe to know this. Um, when Pulp Fiction came out in 1994, it was one of the biggest things ever. I was so transfixed by that movie, I'd never seen anything like it. And it just, it was the movie that dominated pop culture for that entire year, which is pretty funny considering Forrest Gump came out the same year, and that's the one that beat it for the Oscar. But that, but Pulp Fiction was really the one everyone was talking about. I had never seen Reservoir Dogs prior to that, so I eventually went back to watch that. And these were like these just crackling with energy, these new types of movies nobody had ever seen before. I was 20, I was in college, so I was right in the wheelhouse for these type of movies. And Jackie Brown, for people who don't know it, was the follow-up to Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction was the biggest thing ever, and everyone was dying to see what Quentin Tarantino would do for his follow-up to Pulp Fiction, because, again, how do you follow up that movie? And then what he did is he, he waited three years. He didn't do anything for a while, he eventually... Not only did he do this movie, which is very much kind of a slow love movie almost. It's nothing Mm -hmm. like Pulp Fiction, and it really disappointed a lot of people. And I will say, that's why I felt so strongly about doing this episode. I was one of these people, and I, I hate to admit this, but I will always be honest on the show, that I came out of Jackie Brown, I'm 20, 23 years old, and I thought it was the slowest, most boring movie I had ever seen. And I was just a little too young, I think, to appreciate it. And I went into it thinking it was going to be Pulp Fiction. And for years, I would slam it on like message boards when you write about movies that you don't like. I would always point out Jackie Brown, how boring it was and how, how many people I knew had been disappointed by it. So that was really kind of the what it faced at the time. So many people were let down because it wasn't Pulp Fiction. And that's why I think it took a long time for it to kind of gain an audience because it's not trying to be Pulp Fiction. And that was, unfortunately, yeah, the timing is what, what, what always got it.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can't really make another Pulp Fiction. Um, I don't even think we don't have movies like Pulp Fiction anymore that are sort of genre defining, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, I mean, if you just look at movies that were made sort of in the wake of Pulp Fiction, there's a lot of copycats. Um, so Like Everybody else was chasing Tarantino, so when he made Jackie Brown, he couldn't really be in that same milieu because everybody else had already done it, so he had to do something else.
0: Yeah, and it's funny when you read reviews of Jackie Brown now, most of the critics liked it. They're like, wow, it actually proves Quentin Tarantino can show restraint and he can adapt somebody else's screenplay. That's another key thing, that this is the only movie to this day that Tarantino didn't write, right? He actually adapted somebody else's work.
1: Yes, so it's an Elmore Leonard book uh, called Rum Punch. Mm -hmm. Uh, According to interviews that I looked at of him, he had been thinking about doing this even before Pulp Fiction. So it's sort of been in the back of his mind and percolating before Pulp Fiction, which would maybe explain why it's the only straight up thing that he's adapted because after Pulp Fiction and then after he got this out of his system, he pretty much had free reign to do whatever he wanted. So his mind was just whatever he wanted to do so he didn't have to go to other source material um but i would argue that going to other source material is probably what makes this in my opinion his best movie
0: yeah and i have heard other people make that same argument because tarantino kind of has to tone down some of his excesses and we'll just say some of his flaws and vices are not present in this movie so it's much more like a normal traditional movie and yeah like i said the critics were really impressed by this movie Tarantino fans, especially young ones, were not. And I really, I, I have to point this out, I read a, a, a article about this recently, that this movie is really the one that broke Quentin Tarantino's heart, because he really believed in it, he thought he had made a masterpiece, he was kind of shocked that his audience didn't like it, that people didn't like it, and I think basically what happened is at that point he took his ball and went home and said, you know, screw you guys if you don't want me to make these restrained beautiful love movies, I'll just go and do these over the top gore fest action fest and he kind of follows this up with Kill Bill, which is nothing like Jackie Brown, but a
1: little different. That's what
0: the that's what the article pointed out that Tarantino had his heart broken and he's like, fine, you guys don't want this kind of movie, screw you, I'll just make these these over the top things from now on.
1: And also he was sort of dabbling with being an actor um i don't know if this was pre or after jackie brown but it was all sort of in the mix there i think he was on broadway with marissa tomei Mm -hmm. in wait until dark (laughs) maybe somebody will correct me but i've seen pictures of that so he was kind of a man about town um yeah in between jackie brown and pulp fiction i mean jackie brown and uh kill bill
0: yeah so did you like jackie brown immediately when you saw it i'm curious the first viewing it hooked you
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think I was in high school the first time I saw it. So it might have been around like 2004, 2005. Mm -hmm. Um, I had seen Pulp Fiction and it was one of those movies that I really liked. But you hear so much about a movie like that and you appreciate it and you respect it. But it's kind of like a historical document in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas Jackie Brown, I didn't really know anything about it. And I was just really, really into it. I thought it was really... Fun and it's one of those movies that you know you can watch it on a Saturday afternoon, it's long enough and it's sort of relaxed enough mm-hmm. and entertaining enough that you kind of just melt into the movie and just let it wash over you.
0: Yeah, and that's how Tarantino described it. I've read a bunch of interviews and comments from him where he says it's really just a hanging around movie where. There's not really a driven story where something has to happen every scene that drives the plot line. It's really just mm-hmm. characters hanging out with one another and talking. And it's just supposed to wash over you, these character scenes, just little little moments of uh, really well-developed characters interacting with another. And he's like, I wanted to do a movie like that. It's based on some older movies I would not seen, just the hanging around movies. And so that's that's why I think this movie really it it helps the more times you watch it. I think it gets better with every viewing, especially when you just like you said, it's like a a comfortable old slipper. You just kind of slip your foot into it and enjoy it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, when you watch it and you compare it to other Quentin Tarantino movies, there's no stakes in this movie really. I mean, there's stakes for the characters, but anybody else that's on the periphery, like it doesn't what's happening to these characters really does not matter to anybody else. It's a bunch of sort of low level criminals and sort of crappy ATF agents that are kind of like on minor cases and stuff. I mean, none of these people are, you know, they're not killing Hitler or anything. So it's, (laughs) the stakes are very, very low and it's, it's, you don't have to worry about other people on the periphery of it. It's just these small groups of people fighting over like a relatively small amount of money for what other Tarantino, uh, characters might be doing
0: yeah and again you can just you can feel the love that tarantino has for these characters i mean and not Mm -hmm. only the characters but the actors and that's always yeah. the subtext with a Tarantino movie like he wanted to put Robert Forster in a movie he dragged this guy this big star from the 70s who hadn't done anything in 20 years he goes I'm going to write a movie where you're going to win an Oscar it's written specifically for you and he just loves this guy he loves uh, Pam Greer who pe- people may not know was the big action star in the 70s same thing star of all these black exploitation movies he's like I want to bring you back I want to give you something with some depth I'm going to write this movie so that's the one thing this movie just has so much love and attention to detail and you can see it the more you watch it why tarantino himself loves it and i think uh, samuel l jackson who was in this movie also said this is his personal favorite tarantino movie as well
1: yeah and pam greer uh she says this in interviews uh they had a lincoln center film series about her a few years ago so there's a bunch of good interviews from her on youtube if you want to look them up apparently she auditioned for pulp fiction also uh, for the Rosanna Arquette role, oh. but then they cast Eric Stoltz, and Quentin Tarantino said, uh, Eric Stoltz is never going to yell at Pam Greer. <laughs> so he had to he had to put her on the back burner, but then he wrote this movie specifically for her. He wasn't going to make it if she didn't agree to do it.
0: Yeah, so for my younger audience, you guys won't know Pam Grier. She was this big, very huge, iconic action star in the 70s. So it was really neat seeing her have a comeback, having Robert Forrester have a comeback, and... I I have to tell my story. I have a little, kind of a lengthy story here, Will. hope you indulge me here. But why it's so important to me why I did this episode. Um, This movie, um, aside from being the follow-up to Pulp Fiction, it really is a love letter to one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite places in the world. And I just read a whole article about this, so I'm not just pulling this out of my butt. This movie is a love letter to the South Bay of Los Angeles. Now, Will, you probably don't know where that is, right?
1: Uh, I've been to Los Angeles one time, so I probably don't have a good sense of that.
0: Okay, south of the airport, south of LAX, there's a whole region of Southern California, the South Bay. It's where Quentin Tarantino grew up. It's one of his favorite areas, and every single location in this movie is set in the South Bay. Did you know that?
1: Uh, I did not. It just all kind of looks like dingy California to me, so I don't know yeah. what that says about the South Bay. but
0: Okay, yeah, it's very distinct and like the mall. The mall in this movie is the Del Amo Ugh. Fashion Center where Tarantino himself used to go all the time when he was a kid. Very iconic mall. And then uh, the cities of Carson, Hawthorne, uh, Hermosa Beach, and Compton. All, again, this is a very distinct area. And I will say this is an area of the country where I happened to live for 10 years so I know it really well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my wife and I moved to Southern California in 1999 and we moved to the South Bay. We moved to Torrance, which is where this Del Amo Mall is, which at the time was the biggest mall in the country. And when we had kids, we had a baby and we didn't have anything to do. We were when you're a small kid, you're stuck at home all the time. You have nothing to do. You're just killing time. We took our kids to Del Amo Mall. We used to walk around. It was, like I said, the biggest mall in the world, and you could do laps around it, and you could spend an hour or two just doing that. It was so huge. Yeah. So, I again, I didn't like this movie, but then we moved to the area where the movie was set, and I know Torrance. I know that mall. A couple years later, we lived in Carson, which is this shitty, terrible area of Los Angeles, but that is where Cherry Bail Bonds is set, and that was a real Bail Bonds location called Carson Bail Bonds, which was literally about three blocks from our house, so every location in this movie, I've lived in that area, and I know it very well, so eventually it grew on me that this movie is kind of a love letter to a place that I spent many formative years of my life, and that... So it's, 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 it's something meaning, meaningful to me. This movie has grown on me over the years just because it's like looking back at earlier parts of my life, this whole area of Los Angeles that is gone. It's all been renovated since then, but it's like a time capsule of Tarantino, uh, you know, throwing it all on camera and showing what that area of the country was like. So that's one thing that's very special to me here.
1: It's interesting that uh, you say I didn't know that that was an actual bail bonds place. And that kind of dovetails into my most recent watch. One of the things I really appreciated and noticed, and I wonder if this is just because that's what was already in the Bail Bonds Place, is that all the set direction in the movie is very lived in, and it's very realistic mm-hmm. in a way that other Tarantino movies are not. Like, this movie is not sexy. Do you know what I mean? Uh, like, if you look at the places that they are, and just pay attention to all the little, just the clutter and crap that's everywhere. Like, they're in the uh, Bail Bonds Place, there's an old typewriter next to a calculator next to like a miniature Ferris wheel. Mm -hmm. And there's a statue of a frog on a unicycle and novelty mugs everywhere. Just every place is covered in crap and it's cluttered and the carpets are dirty and the couches look old and it's just, it's not sexy. It's not cool. It's lived in and it's a little past its prime. And that's kind of what every character is in the movie also. So that's something I really appreciated this time. So that's interesting.
0: Yeah. It's a, I will say, I don't know if people, anybody out there knows this area. The, the Bail Bonds place was called uh, Cherry Bail Bonds. It was on the, course, the corner of Carson Boulevard and Avalon Boulevard in Carson, right by my house. Just a terrible, gritty, blue-collar area. Perfect place that Max Cherry would live. Like you said, it looks like a place a bail bondsman would be his entire life, and that was a legitimate bail bonds place. Yeah, so it's it's really neat. It's all been torn down. If you go to Carson now, all that's been renovated and upgraded, and it's not there anymore, but it's it's just so meaningful that's to me. Good. It
1: kind of looked like it needed to be <laughs> torn down. I <I'm> think <laughs> yeah. this movie is so dingy. That's what I love about it, yeah.
0: Oh, but Del Amo Mall, that's the one that breaks my heart because that entire mall has been renovated. It looks nothing like that anymore. But like every scene in the mall in this, I know exactly where they're filming it because that was a that's a very prominent mall that they used in movies in the eighties and nineties. I think uh, Valley Girl from nineteen eighty two was set there, Bad Santa from ninety nine or two thousand was there. Just it was just a real iconic place. So anyway, it's this movie, the more times I saw it, it grew on me, and then I lived in the area, and I realized that Tarantino was just doing a love letter to kind of this dingy, blue-collar area of California. Just That's why it eventually won me over, and I just love watching it now, and it just, like you said, I just let, love letting it just wash over me, these long, slow, protracted uh, Quentin Tarantino scenes where it's just sitting there, they're just doing dialogue. That's like.
1: <laughs> yeah, long, long takes too. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump in. No, that's
0: fine. That's exactly what I was saying. And it's funny doing a staff picks episode on this movie compared to like a comedy. When I do a comedy, I'm writing down punchlines left and right. I'm trying to keep notes on everything. For, mm-hmm. for a Tarantino movie, it's interesting because I don't write down that many notes. I just kind of write the gist of the scene and I can remember the dialogue. So I don't need like refreshers. So it's kind of refreshing doing a movie like this where I don't have to keep track of every little nitpicky line of, of dialogue
1: yeah I mean the Tarantino I mean there's lots of good dialogue, but it's just sort of a mood and it's an environment that's kind of what tarantino does mm-hmm. he's he's all about creating mood and environment and moments um, plot is never his number one concern really uh which is why this movie is so good because he doesn't have to come up with the plot um
0: <laughs> yeah you could you could probably summarize the plot of this movie in like a couple sentences. that's the thing. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be interesting once we delve into the plot here, which we should get into in a minute here. But but yeah, it's a Quentin Tarantino cares about three things, characters, dialogue and soundtrack. And I think everything else
1: you left off feet feet. uh, Otherwise, that's correct.
0: (laughs) And Samuel L. Jackson screaming the N word and MF.
1: Exactly. I mean, watching this movie I was like, wow, it's a lot lighter on the N-word than his other movies. <laughs> yes. Than I remember.
0: Yeah, he toned it down and went to the Mother Effer. That's where that was, I think I read somewhere that of all the movies that Samuel L. Jackson's ever done, this is the one he says mother effer the most times. So, this is the the record holder.
1: Yeah, I think the I think uh, Quentin Tarantino was a little bit scared of Pam Grier, so I think he was on his best behavior on this set as opposed to any other ones. <laughs> That's just the impression that I get.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, I, I've just read meetings or, or stories of him meeting her and just how in awe of her she was. Like she was like one of the biggest stars in the history of cinema in his eyes because these these are the type of movies he grew up with.
1: Yeah. And what I love about Pam Greer, sorry, just to go off on a little bit of a tangent, mm-hmm. is that people think in her movies that she was playing herself, but she wasn't, what's well, not quite accurate, like she's kind of a hick. Like she was raised on a farm. She still lives in Colorado now and raises horses. Mm. And she got into acting just because she was Roger Corman's receptionist, <laughs> and he just liked her. And so he said, hey, you want to go to the Philippines and shoot a movie? And she said, OK, but I don't want to get fired. Like, I need the money. I'm trying to, like, get tuition money. So he gave her a book on the Stanislavski acting technique. <laughs> so she's not a trained actor, really, but he gave her a book on acting technique. And the technique was basically, uh, don't act it, just do it. So when she went to the Philippines and did all these, like, like women in prison movies, she was just like, OK, well, I want – he wants me to get in a fight. Well, I'll just fight. Uh <laughs> So she was a very committed, uh, prepared actor. So that was her that was her uh, her strength is that she would just do whatever was called for. And she didn't double like she didn't question herself or doubt what she was going to do. She just did it. And so that's what her power where her power came from on screen.
0: Was she also smuggling money back for Roger Corman in her duffel bag?
1: Uh, only cocaine, actually. Um, Roger Corman didn't really like having a lot of money, so it was really just the drugs. Speaking of uh, smuggling money, the mo- did you? Uh, there's a documentary on the DVD about the making of the movie. They actually were using real money, like it was actually real half a million dollars in that bag. That's how much power Quentin Tarantino had at the time. He, just, he could just say, "You know, I really want five hundred thousand dollars in a shopping bag, just for." the sake of fealty and making it look real so <laughs> yeah, that's what he got
0: yeah because Carson, california is where you want to walk around with a million dollars in cash that is the ideal location
1: <laughs> I, I mean i guess it worked out maybe this movie lost money because they just got you know robbed a bunch of times
0: <laughs> okay let's Let's go through the plot of this movie for people who have never seen it. I am assuming most people have seen this movie again it's a Quentin Tarantino movie so it's not like I'm pulling some obscure sword and sorcery movie from the 70s. But um, although I'm going I will admit, I'll be the first person to admit this will I have the hardest time explaining how the double cross happens at the end and what exactly happens with who. I've always had so I think I'm working to struggle with this one. Hopefully you are here to lead me through it
1: yeah it gets a i will say i love this movie i think it's his best movie i think the editing is really strong uh i will say i think it loses the plot a little bit there at the end um he kind of loses control a little bit of what's going on and apparently quentin tarantino knew that while he was making it like he had trouble figuring out where everybody was in the plot and he would say pam tell me where we are in this movie i can't remember (laughs) so i think quentin tarantino would agree with you
0: Okay, well, that does justify at least a little bit of my dislike the first time I saw it, because I remember the movie ended, and I'm like, wait, what happened? I don't even know who ended up with what. So, yeah, so yeah. we'll do our best. Well, anybody who's listening, we we are, we are but simple messengers here trying to decipher a very uh, confusing labyrinthian plot.
1: Just think of us as two former Miss Orange Counties holding plot in our hands and describing it to you. <laughs> yes.
0: Okay, so to describe the movie, the movie is thus. It's really the story of a stewardess named Jackie Brown, and she is one of many drug runners. There's this uh, guy who sells drugs, he sells guns, he's a weapons dealer named Ordell Roby, played by Quentin Tarantino, or uh, sorry, played by Samuel L. Jackson. And And now I
1: almost, I already have a disagreement with you, actually. I don't know if she's one of many. That's one of the things I got in the most recent watch. I think it's he's pretty like – he doesn't have a lot of people working for him. He's kind of like on a low totem pole. She's one of a few. So what she brings him is very, very important because he doesn't have a lot of other money coming in. But sorry not to derail it. No, I, derail it.
0: I think you may be right because I was just thinking of that as well, that at one point it said he has $500,000 and that's all the money he has. And I'm like if he's a successful gun runner, he would have a hell of a lot more money than that. <laughs>
1: And, yeah, he, ha- he like, quibbles with uh, Max Cherry over the bail bonds because he's like, okay, well, I need another $10,000, and he doesn't have it. Like, he has to scrounge around, and, like, he's he's very cash poor at the moment.
0: Okay, so he's a... He's the B team. He's the B level of gun runners in Los Angeles. He has a couple people that can do his uh, transactions for him. And Jackie Brown is very important to this guy because he has all this money in Mexico. And she is a stewardess for this little piece of crap airlines called Cabo Air. And she is routinely flying down to Mexico, picking up his money, bringing it back. And she's very integral to his business dealings. Are we are we okay on that one?
1: Yep, we're all set. I agree.
0: <laughs> okay, so the movie opens with just Jackie Brown on a typical day at work. You see her at LAX, and just one of these tr- classic Quentin Tarantino opening shots where the camera just lingers on Pam Greer for like literally like four minutes to open the movie as she's just going down this walkway to work. And it's just like, it's really just Quentin, yeah, Quentin Tarantino saying, Pam Greer, ladies and gentlemen, drink her in. Look at her for a while.
1: And it's also, it's a direct, it's like a copy of the uh, opening scene of the graduate also
0: yes same place in lax same mural and everything mm-hmm. okay yeah so we we meet jackie brown and we see her at work she's a stewardess and then we won't see her again for like 30 minutes she disappears for a huge stretch here at the start
1: Yeah, it's 27 minutes in i looked around there i looked at it
0: <laughs> yeah well what's funny is this movie is really about ordell samuel l jackson and we go to his pad and we meet him we see his whole setup that uh What do we see here, Will? Explain uh, Ordell's uh, beach pad here to everybody.
1: Okay, so he is living in a beach pad that looks like maybe it was cool five years ago. It's kind of like run down and dingy now. He has a girlfriend, one of many girlfriends he has, uh, named Melanie, Mm -hmm. who's played by Bridget Fonda. She's like a beach babe who just like the apartment was probably cool and really hot to him about five years ago <laughs> um, he actually has a new girlfriend now uh, that's younger than her so he's probably going to move her up to the number one position uh, and he is there with his friend Lewis who just got out of jail played by Robert De Niro and they he's giving him the spiel about his gun running business and um, and that's where we meet him at the beginning of the movie.
0: Yeah. And I got to say, a movie has a pretty all-star cast when Robert De Niro is your fifth build.
1: Exactly. And he's very, very, very understated in a way that he rarely is in, this, in any movie.
0: Yeah. I, I do remember the first time I saw this movie thinking it was kind of a waste of Robert De Niro. Like, almost anybody could have played that role. But again, it's Tarantino wanted big-name actors. And yeah, De Niro just plays this sidekick thug who's kind of an idiot and basically just has sex and gets stoned all day. That's really all he does.
1: Yeah. Well, if you, and then I'm just going to steal stuff that they said in the documentary, but it's really informed how I watched it. If you watch him in the movie, he's underplaying it, but also he's playing it as if a guy who like came out of a bunker after 10 years. So he just got out of jail and there's all this stuff that he doesn't like know how to, what to do with. He's kind of having sensory overload. There's a scene where Sam Jackson gives him like this giant thing of keys Like, okay, here, you can go sit in the car and turn on the radio. And De Niro's just, like, fumbling with the keys. He doesn't know which key is for the car. He doesn't know how to work the alarm system. He doesn't know how to work the radio. So he's just kind of at a loss to what to do a lot of the time. So he's just kind of stunned by everything.
0: So he's basically the unfrozen caveman lawyer from SNL. Like, I I don't know how society works. It's frightening.
1: Yeah, he's exactly that, except, you know, a little more trigger-happy but otherwise, it's exactly like that SNL skit.
0: Exactly. <laughs> okay. So right off the bat, we see Ordell, and he's you know talking about his, his gun business and how much he gets guns for, how much he resells them. And right off the bat, we there's a, a snag in his organization that one of his runners, a guy named Beaumont Livingston, played by comedian, big comedian at the time, Chris Tucker. I don't know. Is Chris Tucker still around? I haven't seen him in, in a long time.
1: Uh, No. I think he had some legal trouble. Um, Not the kind of legal trouble that's happening now. I think it was just drunk driving or something. (laughs) But uh, he's kind of not around, although I think he got paid a lot of money for those Rush Hour movies, so he's he's okay.
0: Okay, good. Just making sure. But, yeah, Beaumont has been busted for – he got busted for drunk driving, and he happened to have one of Ordell's unregistered guns on him. And it's like a parole violation because he's been busted before. And all of a sudden the cops are all after him, and he's going to go to jail, and he's going to roll over and rat out his boss, Ordell – And we get a really long – there's like 30 minutes here, I think, this this scene goes on where Ordell's going to go bail Beaumont out of jail. He goes to – I guess we're jumping over Max Cherry. Explain who Max Cherry is to people.
1: So Max Cherry is a bail bondsman. Um, He's a little bit over the hill. Uh, He he seems like he maybe had a hip happen in life about five, ten years ago, Mm -hmm. much like everybody else in the movie. Uh, He's a little beaten down. He's a little tired of his job. Uh, he's very no-nonsense. Um, he doesn't really care why they're in jail or why you want to bail him out. He's very matter-of-fact. Uh, you get the uh, impression that he's very he has some discretion, so that's probably why Samuel L. Jackson has decided to go to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he's just a very sort of button-up, straight-laced guy. We don't really know much about what his life was like before, but you can kind of sketch it in your mind.
0: Yeah, and um, played by veteran actor Robert Forster. I don't know if people know him. He was a very prominent leading man, again, kind of military-looking guy, straight-laced Mr. Astronaut, played a lot of space movies just back in the 70s, and he mm-hmm. had not done a movie in so long, and Tarantino specifically wrote this role for him, dragged him out of retirement. I I think I read Forster didn't even have an agent. Like Tarantino's just said, here, I wrote this for you. You're going to do this. And the guy's like, seriously? <laughs>
1: Yeah. He might have been acting a little bit, I don't uh around that time, but like Pam Grier, they were always sort of acting, but it was a bunch of stuff that you didn't see. Yeah. <laughs> or it was direct to D V D.
0: Yeah, and, and Forster ended up getting nominated for an Oscar for this role, so it was very uh good role. So yeah, anyway, he so anyway, uh Samuel L. Jackson goes to bail out Beaumont through this bail bondsman and, and Max Cherry will come back later in the movie, but for now Samuel L. Jackson bails Beaumont out. We have this really long scene where he confronts him, and he's basically trying to find out how much Beaumont told the cops. And uh, turns out Beaumont is a. There's a couple of words here he uses to describe Beaumont: peanut-headed and cheese-eating. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's mm-hmm. not your. That's right. Yeah, not a very hardened criminal. But Jackson, but uh, Ordell's worried this guy's gonna roll over and tell the cops and rat out his boss. So he basically convinces Beaumont to get into the trunk of a car. They drive around into this oil derrick, which it's it's in Compton. I know exactly where the scene is filmed. It's not far from where I used to live. And then he shoots him, kills him. And this serves a point, basically, for the rest of the movie
1: it's a great shot too. You see him get in the car and he starts it up and they're supposed to drive to Koreatown and he just drives around the block and the, the camera goes up on a crane and you just see him park the car, get out and shoot him. It's very, it's very cool. Yeah.
0: It's a, and again, it's a, this, this scene is kind of comical and it's one of the few scenes that's actually kind of Pulp Fiction-y, but it's really the last one in the movie, but it does serve a purpose. If you're caught with Ordell's drugs or money or guns You better not start naming names or you're in trouble. You're going to be dead. And this is going to tie in very quickly to Jackie Brown's story.
1: Yes. We finally do get back around to Jackie Brown, the title character, after about half an hour.
0: (laughs) Okay, so explain to people what happens with Jackie Brown. She's about to have a run-in with the cops, and this is where she's about to come very close to becoming Beaumont number two.
1: So she, um, as we find out later, was sold out by Beaumont, and she is walking in the parking garage in her really ugly uh, stewardess outfit, mm-hmm. um, like just awful blue and orange. And she gets stopped by two cops, one who was played by Michael Keaton and one who was played by an actor whose name I do not know. <laughs> uh, and they're they're feds. And they after like a really nice spat of, spat of dialogue between them, they search her bag and they find – I don't remember how much money do they find initially $50,000 uh in her bag? Yeah,
0: 50,000 it's by law you must declare if you're carrying more than 10. She has 50, so yeah. she's committed an ATF crime and now they're on top of her.
1: Yes, and then in the um interrogation room, though she's not giving up any names and she's playing it cool, uh they find a small bag of cocaine in the envelope with the money which was put in there by Whoever was giving the money to uh, to Ardell, it was like a little present for his girlfriend, Melanie. Mm-hmm. But she did not know that they had put drugs in there also. And so that makes it a lot more severe of a crime that she's being charged with.
0: Yeah. And this is the uh, interrogation scene. The cops pull in Jackie and they start questioning. Her, and and you, you learn a lot about her life here, that she's 44 years old. This is not her first arrest. She has been busted for carrying before. And what she, she works for like the lowest airline in the history of airline travel, Cabo Air. She makes $16,000 a year. And they're just pointing out how sad her life is. Like you have nothing to look forward to. This is the best you could do after 20 years in the service industry. And we just get the sense that Jackie's kind of beaten down by life. She's seen a lot of hard things happen to her. She's single. She doesn't really have a lot going on and they start uh, pressuring her to roll over. Who who told you to bring in this money? And she, no idiot Jackie, does not name Ordell. She knows if she does, he's going to come kill her. And so what ends up is she ends up going to jail because she won't name names. And this is where our two protagonists in this movie, Max Cherry, the bail bondsman, and Jackie Brown, the beaten down stewardess, are going to meet.
1: And like the two most unlikely romantic pairs, like the two most uh, unlikely romantic um, what word am I looking for? It's the the two most unlikely love interests in a movie of all time. Mm-hmm. It's like a 56-year-old sort of small white man and this glamazon black woman who's about double his size. You will never see <laughs> another movie with a romantic pairing that looks like that.
0: Yeah, and and what Tarantino does that's really smart in this movie, and critics always pointed this out, especially, I mean, even right when it came out is that, These two just develop this fondness for one another because they just have been beaten down. Life has just not worked out for either one of them. They're both kind of lonely. And Tarantino will allow them to develop a fondness for one another, but they never really actually consummate it. And it's really, he shows a lot of restraint because it never actually ends with them hooking up like you think it will.
1: Yeah, it's all very tentative and... and Flirty a little bit, but it's also maybe they're using or maybe she's using him in a specific way. But you get the sense they've been through a lot. So they're not just going to jump into something. Um, They sort of know what's up and they know what the deal is and they they're not going to be rash about anything.
0: Yeah, it's it's very much a a love story for middle aged people. And that's always like when I first saw this and I was 23, perhaps I was a little young to really appreciate the kind of the nuance here in this love story and just the what people of this age would think about life and what a big deal some of these scenes are for them. So that's that's one of the things that I, I in my defense, maybe a 23 year old might not always be the best audience for this movie.
1: Yeah, I mean that's what I love about it is it's, it's like a movie all about being middle-aged. Everybody in the movie, even Melanie in a weird way, they're all middle-aged. They're all <laughs> – their best days are behind them. Melanie, she's a little bit younger, but she's – he can get somebody younger and hotter, and he's not even impressed with her anymore. The only reason she's in a nicer house than his other girlfriends is because she's white, and so she's kind of like a trophy. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, he doesn't care about her. She can't find – she's not going to find anything better. Nobody is on an upward trajectory. Everybody's middle-aged. Everybody's houses are middle-aged. Just everything is dingy and has seen better days. So uh, these two are no exception.
0: Yeah, one would say, as, like you said, as Pulp Fiction was very sexy, this movie is the opposite of sexy. Everything is unsexy.
1: Yeah, this movie is going to the early bird special. Pulp Fiction is, you know, <laughs> it's out all night. It's 4 a.m. and it's in the Taco Bell drive through
0: <laughs> It would be Big Kahuna Burger drive-thru. Thank you.
1: I don't know if they have a drive-thru or not, but I guess I'll take your word for it.
0: <laughs> it's L.A. Everything has a drive-thru out here. Come on.
1: Oh, true. <laughs>
0: okay, so so Max bails – or Ordel contracts Max to bail Jackie Brown out of jail because he's going to do the same thing he just did to Beaumont. He's going to railroad her, trap her somewhere, find out what she knows, and then kill her. And and Jackie knows this, I think, right off the bat. She's aware what her fate is, correct?
1: Yeah, she's, she's prepared. Well, she – When she was in the car with Max Cherry when he was driving her home, she managed to grab his gun out of his glove compartment so that she would be armed for when Ordell came over, which she she knows that he will. Um, So she's prepared for him, and there's this great steam between the two of them where it's maybe like five, ten minutes where there's no edits or no cuts. It's just a continuous shot of them sort of circling each other in the apartment and feeling each other out and trying to figure out what the other person – is going to say or do um, until finally she sticks him with the gun and makes sure that he does not kill her. And she has a proposition for him.
0: Yeah. This is the one time in the movie where Pam Greer really kind of becomes Pam Greer for people who know her seventies movie. She was, she kicked ass and took names and nobody, nobody ever would dominate Pam Greer. And so there's one scene here where Ordell's trying to kill her and she in the dark pulls out a gun, places it against his genitals and basically turns into Pam Greer. She's like, mother F for this, mother F for that. You ain't going to F with me. And it's like, I can imagine the audience kind of cheering the first time they saw that because that's the Pam Greer moment. And she basically, she tells Ordell, she's like, I could roll over on you. I could sell you out. I could get all of my immunity, but I don't want that. What I want to do is basically they cut a deal, right? She's like, you have half a million dollars down in Cabo. You're trying to get me to bring it up here. I'll bring it up here to you. We'll work together, but I want my cut. And then I want to retire because now that I have a re- an arrest over my head, I'll never work again as an airline stewardess. So now we're partners, and this is where an unlikely alliance is born between Jackie and Ordell.
1: Exactly. Uh, although Jackie might have other plans that involve <laughs> Max Cherry and lots of other people, but as far as Ordell knows, they are in business together to get his money to him. Um Ordell's maybe not that bright. Um, he maybe puts on a good show, but as Melanie will tell people, he's not as smart as he would like to think. So Jackie sort of has him hoodwinked.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to resist getting into specifics about this plan just because it's confusing and I am not hundred percent sure I understand it. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll go into that in a second, but there's one really great scene here in the movie that I don't want to skip over where the next day, Max cherry comes to Jackie's house after Jackie has cut the deal with Ordell and he needs to get his gun back. She took the gun from his car and they just talk. And it's one of the greatest scenes in any Tarantino movie. And this is the kind of scene you talked about. You just like letting it wash over you. Just these two middle-aged people talking about life, talking about hardship and just um, how few prospects they have left in the world. And they just talk about what it's like getting old. And, and she even asked him, she's like, you know, uh, if you had a chance to get... Uh, five hundred thousand dollars out of Cabo would you and he's like he's given her legal advice that's what he does he offers people very sincere legal advice and we just kind of delve into these characters and then there's also a moment here where she puts on music for him this Delphonic song and he, Mm he loves it he just is intrigued by it and intrigued by her and throughout the rest of the movie he just listens to the song over and over because it reminds him of Jackie Brown
1: yeah it's sort of like his main theme you hear it every time he's in the car he's playing it um towards the end of the movie when all the the heist stuff is going down every character kind of has their own soundtrack in a way (laughs) that's playing in their car and that would be his um yeah
0: yeah i was just going to point that out there's one part in the movie where everyone's driving around and they all have their own little theme music they're playing on tape decks in their car which is just it's kind of comical how often it happens (laughs) yeah okay so that's jackie and max and ordell anything else we have to go into here before we get to the second half of this movie
1: um, no, I don't think so. I mean, it's all kind of just like you said, the plot is kind of not that it's kind of incidental. I mean, it is a plot that you have to watch it a couple times to have it make sense. Mm-hmm. Um But I do think it is a benefit to the movie that this plot already existed. If you look into Rum Punch, the book, this is pretty much 90 percent of it is. Uh, true to what the book is so Tarantino doesn't really have to worry about the plot which is fine for him because that's really not what he is into he's into little details so when you look that's what makes this movie so watchable again and again is that there's little details everywhere and there's just little Tarantinoisms that he gets to obsess over and have fun with because he's not worried about trying to come up with a narrative because the narrative already exists he doesn't have to worry about that he gets to really just explore the little corners of everything.
0: Yeah, just to summarize it for people, what eventually happens is Jackie's going to try to get all this money, Ordell, his entire life savings is in, in Mexico, Jackie's going to try to bring it back, and she's going to basically play everybody against one another, and she's going to lie about what her intentions are, and she wants to keep that money and then flee, because this is her nest egg, this is all her future, and so uh, again, we're not going to get into details, but she starts playing the ATF people, she plays the cops, she starts playing Ordell. She uh, At one point, we have uh, Louis, the thug, and Melanie, the beach girl, start having their little plot. They're going to steal the money from Ordell. So everybody's trying to scam everybody, and right in the middle is Jackie, who is the smartest person in the room.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, that's I mean, that's a great sequence. We don't have to go into the specifics of what happens, but it's the, the final, I guess you would say the climax, even though there's a little bit after that, um, unusually. Uh, But it's it's told three different times. We see Jackie go into the mall with the money. We see Lewis and Melanie go into the mall to get the money, and then we see Max go into the mall to actually get the money, Mm -hmm. whereas Melanie and Lewis have been given about $50,000 and a bunch of old paperback books. (laughs) Yeah. And
0: again, we're we're specifically not going to give too many details, but I'll just go over kind of the, the, what happens is we have this dry run where Jackie's supposed to bring some money in. She goes to this mall, Del Amo, which again, just, I cannot get over how massive that mall is. It, it At its peak, basically, they had two malls across the street from one another and they just yeah. built a skyline or like a little uh, walkway over the the street that connected the two malls and now it was one mall. And that, that, that was why this movie was, uh, this mall was so big. So...
1: Do you, uh, do you know the department store at the end? Was that an actual department store that was just repurposed, or did they? Oh, yeah. Because I know that's not, Billingsley's not a real department store, I don't think. Yeah, that
0: was a real department store right there on the upper deck. I don't remember which one it was, but yeah, they just repurposed it as Billingsley. But everything else in this mall it did exist. That's exactly how it looked in the mid 90s.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, that department store is just awful. So <laughs> it's just the ugliest clothes that you've ever seen. It's another thing that I love about it. So hopefully that wasn't the actual clothes <laughs> that they were selling. But. Well,
0: I mean, there's a reason this mall was renovated. So
1: <laughs> just like everybody's house and everybody's clothes, it's it all looks like it was really cool and hip maybe five, ten years ago. <laughs> and it sort of needs a new paint job uh, and a little, little spring cleaning. But it's it's days are numbered and it's kind of on a downslide. <laughs>
0: I'll, I'll give people a little bit of trivia here. The, uh, the, va- the famous uh, bag switch. Basically, Jackie brings a bag of money into the mall, and it gets switched with another girl, and then there's a third lady who switches the bag again. It's this whole thing to, it's basically like a, a, a shell game where you have the three shells, trying to pick which one has the little the ball under it. So they're trying to do this to fool the cops. But if you watch this scene in the food court where Jackie's sitting, there's a very distinct wooden structure behind her, it's like this wooden uh, triangle. If you, watch the, oh, yeah. if you watch the movie Valley Girl with Nicolas Cage back in 1982, that was also filmed in Del Amo. And if you watch the scene where all the girls are sitting around doing their Valley Girl talk, that, you can see that same wooden triangle behind the girls. So it's, it's a neat little moment, kind of like uh, a very famous landmark in these uh, L.A. movies.
1: The Valley Girl cinematic universe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Even though the Valley Girl was supposedly set up in the valley up in San Fernando, but it was actually filmed in Torrance. So little known secret
1: in Torrance. (laughs) It's like the Californians started all of a sudden.
0: Well, you know, to get up to uh, to San Fernando Valley, you just take the five and you get off and you get on the, the 405 and you get out of there.
1: What?
0: <laughs> yeah. What are you doing here? What are you
1: doing, our Jockey? <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, the first dry run goes as planned, and everyone gets the bag that they should, and and then Jackie plans her big heist for the second one. And again, I'm specifically going to leave out the details because I will f it up. <laughs> but exactly, yeah. But during the first dry run, she sees Max Cherry, this straight-laced bail bondsman, walking around. And she kind of gets an idea. She's like, you know, if we're handing it off to three different people, why don't we hand it off to four different people and I could slip it to Max and then I'll keep all the money for myself and he'll get a fee and we'll be in this together. So that's really what's going to happen the last 45 minutes to an hour of the movie is this heist going off and us as an audience trying to figure out who's got the bag full of money.
1: Exactly, yeah. And what's funny about it is Max Cherry... You seemingly – you're not sure why he's doing it or why he's getting involved other than he's just sort of intrigued by her. Mm-hmm. And he's also just kind of lost and bored, and he doesn't really have any purpose or drive in what in his life, so he's just looking for something to do. Um, and she kind of – like she does with a lot of characters, draws him in, and she's alluring to him. So he gets he gets hooked in sort of all of a sudden. And he just not, he's not even quite sure why he's doing it, but there he is.
0: Yeah, that's actually something that I pay attention to the more I watch this movie. What is Max's stake in this? He doesn't really have a stake other than, like, there's a pretty girl who's paying attention to him. That's really about it.
1: Yeah, and he, I mean, not to skip ahead to the end, he doesn't take that much money, and he doesn't go off with her either. I think he admits he's a little scared of her. He doesn't think he can handle her. Mm-hmm. It's just like this unicorn dropped into it in his sphere of vision and he just had to see where it would lead him uh just because he couldn't not know what was going to happen
0: yeah you well know, yeah you get the sense that max's life is the same thing over and over no family no loved ones nothing ever changes in his life and like he has a little bit of intrigue here it's something exciting in his day it's like wow a caper so he's going to be a part of it but yeah he even says he was better ready to retire he wanted to give up he's just kind of tired of doing this all his life and at the end of the movie, he doesn't retire. He goes right back to what he was doing before. He's still a bail bondsman, but for for one short instance in his life, he was part of a caper.
1: Yes, exactly. And then she's going to go off, and they'll always have the memory. They'll always have the Della Amomal, but <laughs> their love will stop right there.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay. So let's go through the last part of this movie. Again, I will really try not to screw this up, because it's going to be confusing enough as it is. So, Will um... – <laughs> Okay, let let's let's paint the picture. What how, how how leading up to the final bag switch? What are all the moving parts we need to know?
1: Okay, so uh, she has told the ATF that Ordell is bringing in fifty thousand dollars because he's running a little low on money. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Ordell is actually bringing all all of his money in, which is five hundred thousand uh, dollars. So that as far as the Feds know, there's only fifty thousand dollars coming in. In reality, there's $500,000 coming in. She is supposed to meet with one of Ordell's girlfriends in the food court and swap the bags, so they will have a bag with – five. supposedly, they are supposed to have a bag with $500,000 in it, and she is supposed to receive in return a bag of beach towels, and then the ATF agents are going to track her and follow her so that they can bust everyone. But before that, she plans with Ordell to go into a department store to try on a – Uh, uh, really, what is the word I'm looking for? Spiffy, spiffy pantsuit. Uh, And when she's doing that, Melanie and Lewis are supposed to come in and swap the bags so that before the ATF agents get involved, they will receive a bag with $500,000 in it and she will give a bag with beach towels in it to the the other girlfriend. But her and Max Cherry beforehand have uh, organized it so that she... Puts the five hundred thousand dollars in her what? Wait, where does she put that five hundred thousand? See, I know I'm getting confused. But anyway, she she coordinates it so. Okay, got it, got it, got it. So that she leaves most of the money in her purse. And she puts $50,000 in a bag with some old paperbacks, and she gives that to Melanie. Meanwhile, she puts the rest of the money in another shopping bag and leaves that in this dressing room for Max to come get. And then she runs out of the store and acts very, like, disturbed, and she yells for the ATF agents, and then they come. And then she says, Melanie came and she grabbed all the money. We didn't get to do the swap, so uh, the sting is not going on as planned. And then after that, <laughs> uh, Melanie and Lewis, meanwhile, are in the parking lot. Wait,
0: wait, wait, wait. Now, wait. Now you're getting too okay. Hang on, hang on. Okay.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get it all out, but I think that's, that's the gist. Everybody follow that? That makes <laughs> sense? Everybody, like, have a pen and paper out? Get yeah. it all down?
0: Yeah, we forgot to mention at the start, you're going to need a little scorecard at home to keep track of this uh, podcast. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, all hell breaks loose and... Things go to people they shouldn't go to, and bags get swapped, and again, there's all this surveillance, and it all gets mucked up. And it's yeah. seriously all you need
1: to know is that all you need to know is that. Jackie Brown has the money. Nobody else does because of reasons that she did. So (laughs) just to simplify it.
0: It took me seriously four or five viewings to really grasp all the moving parts, and there's no way I can explain it. I know you just tried, and even you got confused. But, yeah, at the the end of the movie, basically what happens is Jackie has left $500,000 in a bag in this uh, dressing room at the – the department store max cherry walks in and snags it and walks out and he's the key variable because no one else knows this bail bondsman is involved at the end of the movie ordell has lost all this money to jackie brown melanie the beach girl has been shot and killed out in the parking lot in a very funny scene where de niro just can't take her anymore and rather than tell her to shut up he shoots her instead
1: louis is it over there is it over there I mean, we haven't talked about her much, but I love Bridget Fonda in this movie. I think she's a lot of fun. She's one of my favorite Tarantino characters. Uh, She's just a weird weird character. It's like this beach bum, hot girl that's sort of not as hot or as cool as she used to be, but she doesn't really have any other options. So she's just kind of high all the time and watching movies and getting dragged out of the apartment to just – get involved in this stuff but she's yeah she's a lot of fun <laughs> i like her a lot
0: yeah well like you said that's kind of the story of this movie every other every character has no other options this is all they have going on
1: <laughs> yeah they don't they're not going any they're going nowhere fast uh so they're all just kind of biding time until the next thing happens or they go to jail or they get killed it's like they're they don't have a lot of ambitions it's all like i said it's all low stakes there's not a lot of stakes in it for anybody they're just kind of going to do what they're doing now and then soon they'll be doing something else that's sort of of like what they're doing now
0: <laughs> yeah so at the end of the movie basically uh, jackie has ripped off her boss ordell of every single penny that he owns half a million dollars and melanie is dead the beach girl lewis ends up dead de niro he gets shot by ordell for screwing up the bag transfer and we get this r- and
1: you uh sorry to interrupt so you used to live in that area was it especially crime ridden? because one of the things i noticed that i had to laugh at is that nobody seems to uh, react when people are getting shot in public. Like, there's nobody around. And then when Samuel L. Jackson shoots Robert De Niro, if you look, there's just extras walking around. So nobody's really saved by all this gun violence. Uh, so I guess that's just what L.A. was like in 1997.
0: Okay, well, let me, let me put it this way. In Carson, where Cherry Bail Bonds is, I used to live in a, a townhouse complex called Colony Park. Across the street was an apartment was a townhouse complex called the Scottsdale's which was routinely called the single worst area of Los Angeles County. And I just like to let that sink in for a second in this county that was considered the worst like the cops wouldn't even go in there
1: so oh wow i mean that's a very competitive uh, award so it's kind of an honor in a weird way yeah so
0: again we were more than happy to get the hell out of there before our kids got old enough to go to school but yeah it's a very greedy area and you live behind walls you don't go out much outside the walls now del amo where the mall is that's a pretty safe area so where uh lewis shoots melanie that probably would cause a stir but the final scene where ordell shoots lewis that's like in I don't even know where that is. That's over by the airport somewhere, which is just a shithole. So I can totally see that nobody would even, you know, bat an eye at a gunshot in an alley. That just kinda happens sometimes.
1: Yeah, I mean it's just a another day and then Samuel L. Jackson gets out the car and he spends the rest of the movie with Robert De Niro's blood all over him <laughs> and nobody's really phased. You know, just another day in Los Angeles.
0: Yeah. So the very tense ending of this movie, there's a showdown where Jackie's got all her money back at the bail bondsman's place, and Ordell wants to go get it. So Ordell basically has Max Cherry hostage. He's got a gun pointed at him. He's like, we're going to walk in there, and I'm going to get my money, and and if there's anything there that doesn't look good, I'm going to shoot you first, you're going to die, then I'm going to shoot Jackie, and I'm getting my money. So it's a very tense, almost... It's like the one Tarantino movie that doesn't have a Mexican standoff where everybody's pointing guns at each other, but it might as well be in this scene cuz it's very tense, the last 15 minutes of this movie.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's not really a Mexican standoff cuz it's over so fast. It's like it's he comes in with the gun and then snap it's the situation is taken care of. It's very yeah, it's very unusual for Tarantino that the the shootout scene is really not a scene, it's just a moment.
0: Yeah. There's almost no violence in this movie. And that's, I mean, there's the Lewis scene where Lewis gets shot. That's the one thing that's somewhat, but you don't even see it. It's kind of off to the side. But yeah. And
1: Melanie, yeah, Melanie's back, like, you just see the back of her head. You don't see any blood coming off of her. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, but there's very little on screen violence.
0: Yeah, I was, I actually read that, that that was a, the criticism of Tarantino through Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs that he was so violent and excessive and bloody. And this was like him thumbing his nose at the critics. That he would just do a movie with no violence whatsoever and there's no gore and nothing. And then when everyone rebelled against this movie and they didn't like it, he's like, well, screw you. I'll just go over the top with the, the next one. And then you get Kill Bill where there's literally fountains of blood shooting across the, the, the screen. So that's
1: And there's sections of Kill Bill that are in black and white simply because the Motion Picture Association of America would not give them an R rating if it was in color. Yeah.
0: <laughs> So, yeah, so it was a very deliberate attempt on Tarantino to have no violence in this movie. But, yeah, that's the end of the movie. Ordell shows up at the Cherry Bail Bonds. The cops are there. Jackie has called them. Ordell gets shot. And the cops, at, this is the part of the movie I always get confused by. The cops never figure out that Jackie has smuggled in half a million dollars.
1: Yeah, so they're under the impression that Ordell is spooked and that he's only bringing in $50,000. So as far as they know, only fifty thousand dollars came in. Um, the one question I had is, I don't know what the feds think is happening at the bail bonds place. Mm-hmm. So I don't. So like she's. So Max and her have said, okay, come here. We'll give you all of your money. So I don't know what the HTF thinks is actually happening in this situation. Uh, do they? Because they don't. Because they don't think Pam or Jackie Brown has any of the money. As far as the feds know, she has no money from the drop. Uh, so I don't know why they're there or what they think is going to happen. But regardless, they lure uh, Samuel L. Jackson there just so he can get killed by the feds. Yeah.
0: You know what? I'm really glad you asked that question because this is the one thing I actually did pick up on my latest rewatch, what the feds were thinking. I can actually yeah, explain this. They, yeah. Okay. So the feds know that Jackie has brought money back from Mexico and that she had the bag taken from her but they've repeatedly said at all points in this movie, they don't care about the money. They want Ordell because he's the big drug dealer. Mm -hmm. So when the bag gets taken from Jackie in the mall and Melanie ends up dead in the parking lot, they think Ordell has done that. So now not only can they get Ordell on the gun charges, now they get him on a murder charge and it's backed up when Lewis gets shot by Ordell and it's the same gun that was used in both murders. You can trace the ballistics. And so they've pieced it together. Ordell now has murder hanging over him as well. So they don't give one rat's ass about the money at any point once Melanie's dead. They only want to get Ordell. They want to take him off the streets. He's now in it for murder. He's a big name thug. So that's really what their stake in is at this point. They don't care about the money anymore.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, the, the one question I had about the ending, though, is that I guess I wonder what the feds think Ordell is coming to the bail bonds place for. What is he getting out of meeting Jackie here?
0: Yeah. I think he's coming to kill her. I mean they they probably assume Jackie is being used as bait to drag Ordell because they know Ordell has killed Beaumont, so Ordell's gonna kill Jackie, and I think that's all they they they're using Jackie for. She is bait in a let's catch this guy and kill him.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: See, I actually did learn something. I'm very excited that
1: Is everybody following along? Everybody got it?
0: (laughs) Yeah. There will be a test at the end of this podcast, so we're letting you know. Please send in your answers, so I'm making sure you follow this.
1: Exactly. You know, it's very important. (laughs) Yes.
0: So anyway, that's the end of the movie, and Ordell is killed, and the ATF, get and the cops get their man, and it's really, at the end of the movie, we're left with Jackie and Max Cherry, who have somehow conspired to get half a million dollars out of Mexico, and now it's theirs because... Again, it's drug money, no one even is missing it, no one knows it's gone, and Max doesn't take it, right? He only takes like 10%? Yeah,
1: he only takes 10% because that is his fee, Uh, and then she takes the rest of it, and she tries to get him to go to Spain with her, and he does not go, so yeah, they have to part ways.
0: Yeah, it's a, uh, again, this whole movie, these two have been flirting with each other, and Max is listening to the Delphonics, he keeps listening to it in his car, because that's her song, and he's so enamored with her, and again, she invites him to run off, We're we're a team, we can run off together, but he, perhaps in a, kind of a frustrating plot twist, he doesn't do it, he's like, no, I need to stay here, I'm a bail bondsman, I don't do this, and... And so she walks up to him, and it's clear that she kind of likes him, too. He's the one man who's honest and decent and loyal and has never lied to her. And they share a very tender, very nice kiss.
1: Yeah, but I think that's another thing I like about the movie is there's sort of an undercurrent of melancholy in it uh, where, you know, you wish that these two could get together, but in a weird way, they're just – They've been through too much, and there's too much complication and too much hurt and too much history. They just – if maybe if they had met earlier in life, something could have happened. but it's just too – there's too much going on now that they, they just can't get intertwined with another person. They need to go – they just have to go in their separate ways and live their lives. They're, there's not a future for them where they are.
0: Yeah, and again, it's the type of thing I think you you need some life experience to really appreciate the ending and the, the restraint that Tarantino shows by not having them hook up, and that that's kind of the reality. Like, yeah, they like each other, they just pulled off this great heist, and they have obviously fond feelings for one another, but it just isn't the right time, they just don't think it's going to go anywhere. They had their one moment together, their kiss, and then she drives off, and she's almost like, Crying, she's sad and kind of singing the Delphonics. Or no, she's singing across 110th Street, right?
1: Yeah, she's singing across 110th Street. The same move, the same song that was at the beginning.
0: Yeah, and then we end with him just uh, going back to his bail bondsman job, and then we see him like in like out of focus. It's a cool shot where he puts down the phone in the middle of a call, and he kind of turns around with his back to the camera and puts his hand behind his head and looks up, like, "What have I done? How did I turn down?" this offer from Jackie to hook up with her and go to Spain. And it's really just a sad revelation that his life is going to continue right in the same humdrum existence it was before, and nothing's going to change. He had his moment, and now he's right back to plain old Max Cherry, boring bail bondsman.
1: Yeah, and he has to realize he's not the type of guy that can just jet off to Spain. He can't keep up with Jackie Brown. Uh, that's the biggest problem he has is that he's a little scared of her, and hes they're just going in different directions at this point.
0: Yeah. And again, like I said, you, you need a little life experience to really relate to that and appreciate it. But again, just one of those movies I, I can watch over and over again. And Tarantino, even when it first came out, said this is one of those movies you'll want to watch a couple of times. Like the first time you might like it, the second time you'll like it more, the third time you'll like it more. It's one that has to grow on you because it's a, like I said at the start, it's a hanging around movie. You're just interested in these characters, very richly drawn characters, hanging around and interacting with one another. And like Will said, the plot is kind of incidental. It's really just a character study. That's all it is.
1: So the one thing that I noticed on the rewatch was just every little detail in the corner of the screens, um, just like there's so much going on. It's the richest in terms of detail of every Tarantino movie, I think. I think it's really, really interesting and mature it's very strange that a director that young at that point made a middle-aged romance caper movie that's really chill and really not sexy not not cool but very relaxed um so i think it really does benefit from a lot of rewatchings.
0: yeah and again that's the one thing that i just want to get across to people is that that's what the critics were saying after you know this movie first came out they're like he actually is a good director. You give him some restraint and a good story and good characters, and he can, he can make a very legitimate, straight, strong movie. And again, it's to maybe, I don't know, I don't know if it was to America's loss that people didn't embrace this movie because then he went completely over the top with everything else. But this is the one in, his, in the uh, library of Quentin Tarantino. I'm sure he looks back at fondly. And he thinks I, you, you people just didn't appreciate what I gave you at the time, and it's too bad because I could have made more like this. So that's what I think of when I, when I watch Jackie Brown. And again, I, I offer uh, penance every day that I was one of the ones at the, at the time who even just said this movie sucks. I hated it. It's no pulp fiction. So I feel horrible about that. And it's the smallest little thing I could do to do a podcast about it 20 years later and say I was wrong. And what a really good movie this is.
1: Yeah, and then before we wrap up, I just want to give a shout out to one of the true heroes of the movie, which is Sally Minky. Mm-hmm. I think I'm pronouncing that right. She was Tarantino's longtime editor. She was with him from Reservoir Dogs all the way up to Inglorious Bastards, and she died shortly after Inglorious Bastards. I think came out, um, and I think this movie is really fantastically edited. It's there's a lot of moving parts. And it's very low-key, but it's really – and it's long, but mm-hmm. it's mo- it moves, and it's very quick. And I think she was kind of a secret weapon for Tarantino, and just personally, I think I've been able to tell in his last two movies that he's really suffered without her. So I just think it's worth mentioning that she was a big part of what makes his movies uh, special.
0: Yeah, and again, as they say, it takes a village. It's not just one person making a movie. It's the cast, it's the writing, the editors, the actors, everything. So, yeah, it's, I I agree with you. I um, You watch later Tarantino movies, and they suffer from excess a little bit.
1: Yeah, and there's not structure, and it's, it's kind of all over the place. And uh, you sense that there's not really a strong producer uh, who's really guiding him or telling him no. He gets a lot of yeses, mm-hmm. and – Oftentimes, if a director gets too many yeses, they stop being creative. And I feel like that's happened a little bit with him. But
0: Yeah, and again, I, I still go out and see every Tarantino movie when it comes out. But there's some, obviously, that I like a little more. But I will say almost all of them get better the second and third and fourth times you watch them because there's so much going on. But yeah, just... Just again to speak to Jackie Brown. This is the uh, the dark horse, the redheaded stepchild, the uh, the Jackie Brown of his collection, if you will, the one that nobody ever really respected. And it's kind of nice to hear so many people nowadays say this might be their favorite because that's not what you would have heard in 1998.
1: Yeah, it's not his most. An influential or important movie, and it's not his most quintessentially Tarantino movie, but it's definitely his most mature and most like human movie, which I think is what people respond to.
0: Yeah. And again, I just really want to uh, thank you for stopping by. I thought you had a lot to offer, and you'd clearly knew this movie, and you like you were reeling stuff off right at the top of your head. And I don't know if people realize how much editing goes into these episodes. There's some that I have to piece together because it's kind of awkward. There's some where the discussion's kind of clunky. This is one I'm going to release almost verbatim because I just thought you worked so well and I thought we had a good dynamic. So I just really want to appreciate your preparation for this, Will, and coming on the show. I thought that was one of the better episodes I've done, I think.
1: All right. Well, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a anxious person, so I over-prepare for everything. So I'm glad that it worked out.
0: <laughs> Over-preparation is never bad. That's what I tell people. <laughs>
1: Perfect. Yeah, I can send you the page of notes that I have things that I didn't mention and you can you can like post it on the website. Um.
0: (laughs) Okay, I'll post that next to the Jackie Brown uh, bag switching test that we're going to give to the reader, or the listeners.
1: All right. Perfect. Um, And it did occur to me that I mentioned several times a bunch of references that people that have not seen the movie will not it will not make sense to them. So just look up chicks who love guns. If anything I said was confusing to you (laughs) and you have not seen Jackie Brown.
0: Yes, I, I'm sure you can find that on YouTube. I'm sure it's available.
1: Oh, there's a there's a longer version. They shot a, a whole thing. So it's you you can definitely find it.
0: I guess Quentin Tarantino also over prepares.
1: Uh, he, he overdoes a lot of things. <laughs>
0: Okay, again, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, have any feedback, if you want to tell me that Jackie Brown actually sucks and we're both full of crap, feel free. You can reach me at staffpixpodcast at gmail.com or you can reach me on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time I talk to you, I will be out there at the mall switching bags full of money until nobody knows what the hell's going on. And until the next time we meet, I'll talk to you guys later. Bye.
1: Exactly how long I got to be in this motherfucker. Hey, you said 10 minutes. Hey, motherfucker!